Now tell me if you remember No telling if you remember I'll never forget I'll never forget Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I have been very patient in waiting on this guest to find some space in her schedule. We just I just looked at my DMs, and I actually reached out to her on May 29th. So I'm very happy to, that her schedule um, has opened up and allowed us to have this very important conversation. So I want to introduce everyone to Ruha Benjamin. Ruha, would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. And it's really a thrill to be on the show, to be in conversation with you in this fantastic um, this fantastic show. So my name is Ruha Benjamin, and um, I'm trained as a sociologist. I am a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, and I study the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine with a focus on the relationship between innovation and inequity. Okay. So as I always start, why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Uh, We we inherit a bunch of scripts, a bunch of roles, structures that shape our day-to-day lives, it shapes our opportunities. And I think it's important to disrupt those patterns that we've inherited. And so when I first started out college, I was a drama major um, and quickly turned to sociology because for me, sociology was about the drama of life. Mm. And in part, it's about really questioning the various positions that we take for granted, the natural order of things. And so disrupting um, all that's taken for granted about the social um, patterns and hierarchies and categories that we've inherited is really important for me as a social scientist. And I encourage through my teaching, through my public engagement, um, just through living my life to um, just really encourage the people around me to do the same because it's not something that can change through just individual effort, but through organizing and collective movement building in terms of changing the status quo. Okay, so people, people, people. I have highlighted the hell out of just the introduction of the book. So the book Roja wrote is Race After Technology. And boy, oh boy. Well, first of all, there's a beautiful black person on this cover. And I was like, ah, yes. (laughs) Yes. And I'm just going to read you some things that, I I mean, again, this is just the beginning of the introduction, not even the entire introduction. This is just the beginning. I'm going to read you some things that that I um, highlighted and I, and it goes back to what you just said, the natural order, because we've, we've started collectively questioning what the natural order is or what we've been told the natural order is. Mm -hmm. And we are finding out that it's not so natural after all. (laughs) So, um, if you want to, um, so I'm going to do this like I did the book club, everybody. If you want to mm-hmm. follow along and find it, it's on page four. The first thing I'm, um, the first quote is, but the presumed blandness of white American culture is the critical part of our national narrative. Scholars describe the power of this plainness as the invisible center, and that's in quotes, against which everything else is compared and as the norm, in quotes, against which everything else is measured. Got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, uh, 
man, I, I was this, this was just like coming to, coming to Jesus moments for me. Um, to be unmarked by race allows you to reap the benefits, but escape the responsibility of your role in an unjust system. Okay, they, uh, on page five, they calculated that the racial gap was equivalent to eight years of relevant work experience, with, which white applicants did not actually have. And the gap persisted across occupations, industries, employer size, even when employers included the equal opportunity clause in their ads. And then I want you to, this, um, the, the new Jim Code. Did you, is this a ter- term that you created? Yeah, exactly. It's okay. a riff off of Michelle Alexander's well-known concept. Exactly. Yes. So let me read you the definition, everyone, of what the new Jim Code is, and we'll get into this discussion. The new Jim Code, the employment of new technologies that reflect, I need you to hear this, people, because we talk about, I talk about constantly that tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. So the new Jim Code, the employment of new technologies that reflect and reproduce existing inequalities, but that are promoted and perceived as more objective and progressive than than the uh, discriminatory systems of previous eras. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mm -hmm. mm, that just, when I was reading that it was so much confirmation and I'm living, I'm loving all the learning that I'm, I, I tell people I do this podcast because I'm learning. Um, it's helping me understand what it really means to be anti-racist and, and what it really means and why we're having so many problems in tech mm-hmm. and what is really good, the work that's really going to have to happen to, to stop causing harm. Absolutely. Um, so, if you can give me a background, I know you're a sociologist. How did you get to this? How did you, this thing here? Yeah. <laughs> so it really, again, we got to go back to Spelman College, where I went to undergrad historically Black women's school, where, you know, this is a context in which you have, um, you know, people who share similar demographics that draws us there. But one of the things you realize right off the bat is all of the fault lines under that category, black women, all of the regional differences, differences of class, nationality, um, sex and gender, et cetera. And so, you know, part of it is thinking about how differences produced. And for my senior thesis, I looked at the role of medicine in naturalizing differences and making us um, failing to question these differences because of the authority of science and medicine. So I did a thesis there on looking at obstetrics, gynecology, reproductive justice. I um, followed black midwives in the South who continue to practice. And so that got me interested in the authority of science and medicine and how black people have always questioned it, both um, epistemologically, but also through our practices. The fact that you still have black midwives practicing in contexts in which their expertise is not valued or in some places criminalized. So I wanted to juxtapose the great authority investment of power in this conventional site of medicine versus the more subversive forms of black midwifery that I was, um, I had the pleasure of learning from. And so that got me started along these lines. And I take the same questions that I started with, you know, at Spelman, to my work as a graduate student, then looking at the life sciences stem cell research. My first book was on the the forms of exclusion and inclusion there in California with a big stem cell 
um, grant that that um, uh, was implemented. And so again, it's thinking about who's included, excluded, whose worldviews, visions of a good life are embedded in a particular scientific discipline or policy. Um, and so those questions are relevant to every field. And so now we come to the data sciences, you come to computation, machine learning, AI, those underlying questions, which are questions about the social inputs into technology, not simply the outputs, not simply the impact of technology, um, are continually uh, relevant. A few years ago, I kept seeing these headlines and hot takes about so-called racist robots. And what was interesting to me was the novelty in which it was being framed, the, the kind of feigned shock and awe that, wow, all these technical systems could be biased, but anybody who studied the history of racism, as many scholars and activists have done, would tell you that a computer system like other kinds of systems, whether legal system, educational system, healthcare system, um, reflects the values, assumptions, biases, desires, interests of the people who produced it. And so the fact that we put science and technology in a bubble as if it's asocial, apolitical, mm. as if they're not human beings behind the screens actually designing these things, um, to me indicates a, a kind of um, a, a, a real, a, it's not even an ignorance, it's a kind of um, a feigned, feigned shock that mm -hmm. human beings are, are really um, behind the screen, you know, and an and unwillingness to look squarely at the social process that produces these fields. And so I wanted to put my own training in conversation with these developments rather than sort of take the framing that I saw in these headlines about racist robots. I wanted to put it in conversation with critical race studies that's been looking at how racism is productive. It produces things. It constructs worlds. It, it helps to, you know, create value for some, even as many people suffer from it. So um, that's what this book is trying to do, is trying to bring together critical race thinking or, and put it in conversation with science and technology studies in order to not necessarily, um, and it, like you, met, you mentioned in your intro, that it confirmed for you many things. I think many people are already talking about many of the insights in the book. So for me, it was about pulling together the conversations that I saw out there rather than pretending like I was coming up with something wholly new. It was providing a language and pulling together these strands that I saw dispersed throughout kind of public discourse so we could have it all in one place mm -hmm. and use it, at it, the book itself, as a tool to advance the social justice agenda vis-a-vis -vis science and technology. Whew, okay, man. All right. So two things that popped out for me that I... Um, one is about your undergrad, your graduate study work, the reproductive health piece, and then. But I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure I hit on the reason the feign, oh, human thing is that this is the, the issue that we keep bumping up against because we are quick in technology to try to extrapolate out the human in everything. It is as you know, um, it's all uh, it's all automated and 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 or. As, or automate things as quickly as we can. You know, it's like get the humans out of it, get the humans out of it, because they're the bias. And I just, <laughs> I'm just like, oh Lord, we have to really stop with the quant stuff here. We the, the qualitative research, qualitative perspective has just as much value and helps to explain. They both work hand in hand, um, and I see that all the time. Um, 
I have some clients and um, I had them doing some research on um, creating a job description for um, uh, um, a COO, a chief operating officer, because mm-hmm. that to me, outside of the CEO, is the most important job in the company. Mm-hmm. But that's not what tech <clears throat> believes, because it, most of these companies don't have a business. What they have is a scaled product or service. They don't have any process, nothing in place that can be replicated, that they can even actually measure quantitatively or qualitatively. Is it causing harm? What's the bit of none of this stuff? They just keep this running around. And it was interesting that when he was doing the research, he kept coming across these articles who were talking about, yeah, this is a role that you start later once you make X amount of dollars. And then you try to, and you want to automate it out as as quickly as as possible. I'm like the only human role that's in this, I mean, the one role that is about touching people and impacting people, you want to automate out. It's it's quite interesting for me. Yeah. What I'm... I wanna, that, that reminds me of a phrase that one of my colleagues uses to describe technology, and she calls it, this is Donna Haraway, she calls it technology a frozen moment. And so rather than actually um, sort of excising the human out of it, what we do is we solidify a set of human decisions, assumptions, values at the point of creating a technology that then continues to persist. It freezes in time those decisions, encodes it, and then it has an allure of, of objectivity and neutrality. But really what it does is it cre- it makes the human decision at the point of design more rigid, right? Uh, and, and it encodes it in a particular system. And we see how this completely backfires on us. One example that comes to mind recently is in the state of Michigan when the governor um, introduced, Governor Snyder at the time introduced an automated decision system to flag people who were being um, suspected of unemployment fraud. And it flagged over 40,000 residents in Michigan. Only years later do we find out that it was wrong in over 90% of the cases. Meanwhile, people went bankrupt, people Mm -hmm. lost their homes, committed suicide, divorced, were paying back the state money that they didn't owe. And the state coffers, you know, grew and grew and grew. And meanwhile, people's lives, you know, this automated system wreaked havoc on people's lives. But again, the human oversight, there was no Mm -hmm. real human oversight. And whatever the human decisions were at the beginning, faulty as they were, were encoded and then presumed to be efficient and objective and fair, and they weren't. And so again, it underscores the point that you're making about the fallacy of presuming that we really ever get the human out of it. We just solidify and make mm-hmm. our bad decisions um, more rigid. And, and, and you speak to that because you can look at social media platforms right now. Um, when the, when the uh, beginning idea was move fast, break things, people keep saying, oh, well, we're, that's that philosophy has changed. No, that philosophy is ingrained in this community, period. I don't care if Facebook changes. They can write it on a wall that says it's been changed. That is the, that is the, the psyche of this, this community, as well as um, this free speech stuff. And we see that um, when, when, when privileged individuals, because they don't have the impact of being on the, on the, on the, on the negative end of free, or what considered free speech, to them, all speech is equal. And so once you ingrain, once you code that into a system, and you just, I'm so happy you said that. So now that's coded into a system. So no matter how many marginalized people, vulnerable people are telling you, I'm being hurt, because it doesn't match what you've encoded, um, then it is, um, 
because it doesn't match what you've encoded, then you argue with them. Their lived experiences are not as important as whatever you've encoded in this thing. And it's quite interesting. So you just hit, you just, again, I love these conversations because you just connected a dot for me of what that is called because I didn't know Mm -hmm. that had a, Mm -hmm. you had a friend who has a a name for it because that's exactly what it is. It's decisions that were made 10, 15 years ago. Frozen, frozen in the system. We weren't even at the table to say, hey, this shit's not going to work. And now that we're saying it's not going to work, you're saying, well, that's what the system said, but the system is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And I wanted to talk to you about the reproductive thing because- my audience is largely white people. And I try at every moment to, to have it, um, when I bring someone on, I realize has a specific expertise to have a conversation because this reproductive health thing is quite interesting to me because I've been, I've been, I've been trying to make folks understand that white supremacy is the parasite that's now eating on its host. So um, it is all these anti-abortion laws that are being passed. Um, and you have it on both, now that I think about it, you have it on both ends from your undergraduates, the stuff you were studying, and, and you can speak to this specifically. These laws, young ladies, young white ladies specifically, are not for, are for you. They don't care about our babies because if they did, our babies and mothers wouldn't be dying and wouldn't have the deplorable health care and mortality rates that we have. What they are doing is trying to force you white women not to have babies. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, again, is even defining what what we have in mind when we say reproductive rights or reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you just look at it at the, at the point in time of have, choosing to take a baby to term or not, um, that narrow conscription of what the problem is um, leaves out so many other processes and practices that actually should be enfolded in the idea of reproductive justice. And this is the contribution of Black feminists in particular. It is to say that what our education policy is, is a part of reproductive justice. Healthcare access well before you get pregnant as part of reproductive justice. Our zoning laws, our um, investment in, you know, a job opportunities, um, everything along the life spectrum is part of reproductive justice. So don't talk to us and pretend like you care about the health of our babies when every other indicator, every other element of our lives has, has um, a, you know, it blocked opportunities. Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. As, as um, a, you know, it's blocked opportunities, lack of investment. And so it really, really re- reveals the lie embedded around the discourse of pro-life when no other policies in society in terms that would actually engender a good life for people actually support that vision. And so for Black feminists, it's always been a matter of saying that, you know, the right, reproductive rights has to encompass the whole lifespan. And increasingly what we find is that 
people who work in maternal and child health are adopting this lifespan model because they understand that how a woman is treated, what opportunities she has before she ever gets pregnant actually impacts the health of a baby. So we know it even from a biological model that that is true, but from a sociological model, it has to be that when we're, when we're giving lip service to anything related to reproductive health, we have to talk about all of the policies in society, our tax policy, our water policy, our education policy. And unless you are consistent and you're actually investing in life affirming um, you know, investments throughout our social structure, just focusing on the point of pregnancy, that actually reveals the lie embedded mm-hmm. in the entire discourse around mm-hmm. pro-life. Thank you so much. Um, that's, oh, I love brilliant Black women. Thank you. Um, and, and I'm going to keep bringing brilliant Black women on here because I've also recognized that many, because of white supremacy, they don't see us as anything but this animal. They don't see us as women. They don't see us as smart. They don't see us as anything. So I'm going to keep highlighting these stories, these women, this knowledge, because I continue to say Black women are the moral compass of this country. And without us, we will be in such, whoo, y'all think y'all bad, got it bad now. If we, and we're doing it because we know that the shit rolls downhill. If we don't do this work, we will be the first ones impacted. So we do this work and you benefit by product of our work. And uh, I'm going to continue to bring these beautiful black women on the show. Um, so I wanted to talk to you two things. Because I, one of the things is, and you, again, just in your introduction, people, I'm not even asking you, you can read the whole book. You're going to learn a lot in just in this freaking introduction. So, and I might make this actually one of the books. So I started a um, How to Be an Anti-Racist podcast that I do on Sundays. And so we we're going through Dr. Kendi's book. The next book we're going to be going through is um, Neil Painter's The History of White People. And I'm That's thinking, a tomb. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking about adding this because I will have no white authors in this because th- th- we've done enough of that. We need some perspective from some black people. And this really speaks to, because my, my area is tech. So this really speaks to that. So I really want you to talk about two things. You were saying that your, your idea or theory of the Jim Code came from someone else. So I want you to talk about how that evolved. And also something very important. And you talk about this in, again in the introduction, the difference between equality and equity. Mm-hmm. Sure. So to the first question about how the concept evolved, I was definitely influenced by the work of Michelle Alexander and the body of work around critical race studies, um, because one of the core kind of um, issues that we wrestle with in this body of scholarship is how our society on one level seems to be changing, but there are underlying things that stay the same, underlying dynamics of domination, oppression that continue to persist. So how do we theorize the the nature of change and the consistency of various hierarchies and oppressive structures? And so, of course, Michelle Alexander theorizes that through the idea of the new Jim Crow, where she's looking at the relationship between slavery Jim Crow, ghettoization, mass incarceration, to show how racial control and domination persists in a new system and how it builds on these prior legacies. And so for me, the added value of the new Jim Crow is to code is to think about the role of technology in maintaining systems of power and domination, which is not necessarily her focus in that work. And so when I think about the role of technical systems 
the role is twofold. One is that the inequity becomes even more encoded, subtle, um, and it's, it may seem like it's operating where race is not explicit. And I can give you some examples of that in very specific algorithms in which the, the designers are not taking explicit note of race and yet racial disparities are being reproduced. So it's that encoding of inequality that doesn't rely on explicit or intentional racism. And then the other aspect of the new Jim Code that I see as distinct is that the presumed objectivity of technology allows that domination to hide in plain sight. It allows it to penetrate every area of our life, but because people are, are unwilling or unable to question it because it falls within the realm of technology, it makes it actually even more dangerous. So rather than being able to point to a racist judge or a racist cop or a racist doctor who is perpetuating racism, when it is coming through the, the, the it's mediated through a technical system, and where the output is, you know, giving more opportunity or, or more, um, li- you know, life chances to, um, you know, one group over another, and you're unable to question it. One, you don't know what, you know, how it was designed. You can't penetrate it at a very basic technical level, but also it's the kind of um, epistemic uh, cloak in which people don't feel like you can question it because it's technology. Mm-hmm. It's that al- what I describe as an allure of objectivity that surrounds it. And so to me, it makes it, makes it even more important for us to have a language <clears throat> to name it mm-hmm. and to begin to question it. And so that's what the new Jim Code aims to do, to give us a language to be able to call it out when we see it. And in that way, it's a concept that's in conversation with a number of other colleagues who are also writing in the last few years to try to name this problem space. So we think about my colleague, Sophia Noble, Algorithms of mm-hmm. Oppression. We have mm-hmm. in Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks. She's and been an, on the show. Oh, wonderful. We have Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, a number She's of other <laughs> people. Wonderful. So like all of us are in conversation and in solidarity. We're trying to build up a grammar to be able to name the various manifestations of this problem space. Because the fact is, if you don't, if you don't have a word for it, if you don't have a language to name your reality, that means you're still affected by it, but you can't call it mm-hmm. out and thereby you can't intervene in it. So language and the power of words is the first step mm-hmm. to be able to then take the subsequent steps to actually build a movement in order to counter this thing that you have then named. And so this, concept in this book is just one one more grammar, one more element to this larger vocabulary around that's trying to build up a movement around tech justice. Oh my word. Okay, we're going to get to the equity and um, um, equality, but you just hit on it because as an educator, to me, I start every conference, everything with defining terms. Words have meaning. You just can't just change the meaning of things. And then we understand that words do evolve. And so it's, it's, it's a thing that if people people act like it's a, a, a black and white issue. Well, you said the racism is this definition based on that. So you can't change that. Or, or they is used for this. It's a plural. You can't use it for a singular person. I'm like, okay, language evolves. That's yes. just what that is. Um, and yet, even in that language, words mean something. You just can't yes. take, you can't take the word cat and, and, and point to a stop sign and say, that's what they, we're going to call that now. That's not how that works. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that fluidity of language and the meaning of language, I think. And I love, and so this popped in my head 
Um, it's I'm loving that I've had three of the four of you on the show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to get Noble on. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. Yes. Um, so I might need a little help with trying to get her on sure. here. But um, sure. but um, it's interesting that it's women. Are there any men doing this work? Um, yeah, there, there, there's a few that um, I can point to off the top of my head. There's a book that just is coming out this month. So you should definitely have NYU professor Charlton McIlwin here. His book is called Black Software. Oh, yes. And, I, um, that's on my, that's on my uh, Amazon okay. wish list. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So mm-hmm. definitely invite him on. And then a brother named um, Professor Andrew, uh, and Andre Brock, excuse me. Um, down at Georgia Tech, his book will be out in a couple months, and it's called Distributed Blackness. Okay, he's one of the sort of, um, you know, I think you know, OGs in terms of this field of race critical, um, you know, race critical code studies. He's been writing in this area for a long time, mostly in article form, and so his book is going to bring together a lot of those strands. And I, I know that people are going to really um, gain a lot of insight from that work, and so. Yeah, there, there, there are some brothers in the mix. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. All right, so I have those those three books tagged, or three people tagged. Mm-hmm. I have Michelle, I have um, Andre, and what did I just Charlton. See? And mm-hmm. Charlton, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so thank you for the... Yeah, I, I, someone, um, someone I just interviewed mentioned Black Software. Oh, um, um, How Not to Be Stupid About Race. She mentioned mm-hmm. Black Software. Yeah. Crystal yeah. Fleming. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. So um, that now, if, can we talk about the difference? Again, words matter because yeah. I tell people that I'm not interested in equality. I'm yeah. not, I have no, there's no way we can be equal. Yeah. <laughs> I say this, I've been saying this for over a year in my talks. It would take a, a white man to get narcolepsy sleep for years, get mm-hmm. even, and when, and I get every advantage. And even when he gets, he wakes up that he simply crawls, but even with his crawling, because he gets benefited out and all these other stuff, he's still going to end up ahead of me. So I'm not looking for equality. I'm looking for equity. Yeah. <laughs> so can you talk yeah. about what those things are? Cause you mentioned those in the book. Cause I, that's yeah. the, that's a big thing that people I find screw up and make, and make huge mistakes in when they're trying to, create inclusive environments or inclusive events and and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, a really, you know, straightforward way of thinking about it is that equality um, is is very literally like making two things the same. So it relies on a foundation of sameness and it's looking at those two things as if, again, that they're on an even playing field, that they share the same histories, whether you're talking about two groups they experience life in the same way. And so it's just a matter of making sure that we even out the opportunities, the resources, et cetera. Equity, by contrast, is really grows out of an analysis of this history and the differences that surround people's experiences. And so rather than trying to make things the, things the same, it's trying to address the actual needs that grow out of th- this very unjust history. And so... Um, the goal is not to, to make everyone the same, but to actually address the needs of any given time. And so for me, ec- equity is important, but I would also say anytime we're talking about equity, we also need to add into that um, an analysis of justice and really thinking about how power operates. And power is not simply a top-down phenomenon. It's just not something that it happens through one or two gatekeepers or overseers or people in power, but power is also 
diffuse, it's horizontal. We exercise power in the way that we move through the world. And so even though you might be on the one hand, the, the target of an unjust system, you might also exercise forms of injustices against other people in your group or without. So it's also owning our own complicity in how we help to maintain um, forms of privilege and power. And so really this is a conversation that doesn't leave anyone out. None of us are on the side of the innocent or on the side of a pure victim in these systems. We have to think about how we um, continue to, even if it's at the level of just internalizing the logics of domination. Like if you think about colorism in the black community, there's, it's not as if, you know, there's a white man installed in every house telling us to value lighter skin over darker skin. We have internalized these logics and then we perpetuate it. It's the, it takes the form of, say, a grandmother telling her grandkids not to spend so much time in the sun in case they start looking too dark or the way that we police one another's hair or all of the ways in which we internalize the logics of white supremacy and then we perpetuate it. And so that means that we all have a role in trying to combat both the system of meaning and the practices that go along with it. And so rather than spend too much time trying to only direct our, our energies at a boogeyman out there, I think it's important for all of us to take into account our own role in maintaining these systems of meaning and, and power and try to, 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 to intervene where we can in our own mind, in our own relationships, in our own workplaces, in our own families. We have a lot of work to do. And for me, it's that, that's where I like to direct my own focus rather than only looking to white people to change. Because I have, to the extent that I have internalized the logics of white supremacy, it is inside of me. Yep. And I have to actually take that into account. Okay, so again, I'm getting so much confirmation. So the four guiding principles of hashtag call the scene are one, tech is not neutral. Two, um, um, strategy without attention is chaos. Three, um, lack of inclusion is a risk management issue. And four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. And that to me is how I get to the equity question. Um, because when we talk about when I define privilege, it's only, it, it, it's simply, people get on, simply who has access and who gets to leverage that access. So depending on what situations we're in, we, our, our access to privilege or our levels of privilege change. So if we come into a space and we are, and this is this internal thing you were speaking of. If we um, come into a space and we evaluate who in this space is the most vulnerable by making sure that they feel safe and protected, everybody else is going to feel safe and protected. And it also, so, and then that's the first part, part A. The part B is um, where I say whiteness is, is, is all whiteness is racist by design. That is just what it is. People of color um, have to deal with the, um, model minority myth, which is anti-blackness. And then black people specifically have to deal with our own internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness. So it, it leaves everybody in here with the responsibility to do something um, um, when we cause harm intentionally or not, to recognize that, to own it, to figure out how we won't do that again, to make amends, to rebuild trust. It's on a comment upon all of us. Um, so it, just hearing you say that, I'm like, okay, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> resonates, exactly. Yes, it totally resonates. This is what the work I'm trying to get people to understand. Um, people, uh, when they realize, when my followers, um, when the listeners realize that uh, 
start really to understand what it means that I, when I say that whiteness is racist by design, they, I, I wrote an article on um, the five stages of grief. Um, um, and, the, uh, uh, and it's about, you know, white supremacy or anti-racist. I can't even think of the name mm-hmm. right there, but it's the five stages, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like so many white people or so many this like people who realize they're complicit, they get stuck in angry, uh, anger or guilt. You got to move past that. You got to figure out and how you move because this is a, this is an ongoing cycle. I tell people all the time that I'm doing this work as an, because I have the skills to do this work as an educator. So I am educating the oppressor while I'm also processing my own oppression. That is something people have to, so I'm going to make mistakes because I'm dealing with my own <laughs> stuff here. Um, I'm learning things. I'm, 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 and, and, and I might have an, I, I might have a, uh, uh, Oh, and it goes back to bringing her back around, right? Uh, it's not solidified, as you said, is in, in that technology. I may have an understanding of something in January, but by October, it's developed, and that needs to come with me. That mm-hmm. needs to come forward, and that's how our technologies should be behaving. Yeah. They should, as we learn, our technologies should be learning with us. It should be yeah. shifting and changing with us. Yeah, and so many of the 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 um, principles that you just. Um, outlined, I find when we apply it to technology, like even the th- the point about, you know, prioritizing the most vulnerable, um, you know, there are ways to apply that in the process of tech design. I'm thinking about my colleague um, at MIT, Sasha Costanza Shot. That's someone else who you should have on the show, by the way, okay. um, in which she outlines the design justice principles on the website designjustice.com, um, I believe. And goes through how tech designers should be thinking about, you know, their relationship with communities. For example, how do you actually operationalize and partner with communities and find technical solutions that, you know, um, support the vision that people have for their own communities rather than coming in to fix something with some application or software system. And so, for example, one of the um, principles has to do with the needs of the communities always going before the needs of the designer. Or if something is working in the community already, that you don't need necessarily need a technical fix for it. Not everything needs a technical solution. Just because you can create something doesn't mean you should oh create Lord, something. <laughs> and so when you when you really are putting first and foremost um, you know, a humanistic vision of design, then in some cases it's really it's you. You might have to uh, put the brakes on whatever you're thinking to, to to create technologically. And so, I would encourage listeners to check out Design Justice, check out the principles, and actually look at the the projects that are growing out of that. I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently, this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm and for prioritizing the most vulnerable, is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins.
My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1, Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. And actually look at the, the projects that are growing out of that. It's designjusticenetwork.org. There we go. And I think, I actually believe I have her coming on the show. Now that I look at, I need to see her Twitter. Yeah. Because um, I think I've already reached out to her. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thank you for that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you see this, this, the, the, well, first of all, I wanted to tell you one thing that when you were mm-hmm. talking about the, the sameness, what brings to mind is why I, um, uh, and why I, I'm not, okay, I'm not going to speak for Black feminism. I'm just, because mm-hmm. I don't see myself as a feminist, mm-hmm. um, because of, I don't see myself included in feminism, um, is, is the fact that sameness, and I talk about that all the time, why, feminism as it is um, commonly um, eh, what are, used or mm-hmm. enacted is let's only let's only focus on the things we have the same, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is gender. Well, gender in most situations is not my biggest concern. It mm-hmm. is my race, and to say that this not this is something I cannot talk about, or including this is against the 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 thing that we're doing mm-hmm. is problematic for me. Um, because if, if we all women of color or whatever come in and we, um, transgender women, non-binary individuals come in and always focus on is gender, then only the people with that thing will, will be elevated. And this is why mm-hmm. I tell people all the time in tech, white women are not div- diversity. Can we stop that? Cause that's, that's, this is this thing that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an all white panel and they'll have one or two white women. It's like, that's not a diverse panel. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and they think they've done something. Yeah. But I just wanted to bring that up because that's that that I want to. Again, this is when I'm talking. I wasn't really talking to you, yeah. talking to the audience. So they understand the examples of this. No, every absolutely. time you ask um, an individual to silence or cloak those things that make them different yeah. and only focus on those makes them same, then you're using your power structure for you and not for the collective. Absolutely. And that's why Black women, Black feminists have been able to actually theorize in a much more complex fashion and build movements in a much more complex fashion than both white women as feminists and Black men as Black nationalists, because Black nationalism in many ways asks Black women to ignore the gender dynamics of our experience in the name of sameness. Mm -hmm. And so Black women have sat at the crossroads of this and have said, we're not we're not going to give up our racial experience for feminine white feminists and we're not going to give up our gendered experience for black nationalists and so we and we have not uh, we have not allowed either group to own the idea about racism or feminism and so that's what black feminism gives voice to this complexity by saying you don't get to have the monopoly over feminism and you don't get to have the monopoly over addressing white supremacy 
it's through this intersectional lens. And one very concrete example of how this has taken shape through recent research is coming out of MIT again, Joy Bulamwini and Timnit Gebru's work looking at facial recognition systems and how not only have they been, most major facial recognition systems have been very poor at detecting darkness, but black women in particular, mm-hmm. that the, the combination of race and gender actually it, it produces the poorest results in terms of detection through facial recognition. So this is an intersectional analysis that actually brings to light a complex reality that Black women have in the larger social system, but now we see it reflected mm-hmm. through computer systems. And so it, it places a mirror onto this particular positionality that we inhabit to, to draw a light onto how these systems are not only gendered, but they're raced. And when you bring the two together, our experience offers a really unique light on what has to change to make this more equitable. And the thing that 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 is off this that is scary to me is the fact how we scale that. You know, it's 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 not only that it you try to extrapolate the human out of that, but you the 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 levels at which this this harmful, biased, racist. Um, algorithms or whatever they are, are scaled. And, and then it, t- it can't go and tie it back to when you don't have the language. Because I, I can be honest, until I really started studying these things, is I have these aha, this is why I'm saying process, because I have to keep continuing to have these aha moments like, oh, that's what that was. That wasn't me, because, you know, we internalize it and, or the system say it's our failing. And it's like, wait a minute, that was not me. That was not my fault. So you have to go back. If people are going back, and evaluating all the things that they thought that that that, that they were smart um, and they had. And, you know, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and, and you understand that if you're white, no, you really didn't. Um, you're probably about as average as anybody else. Um, and, 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 and it's a, it's going to take you to shift your psyche. I understand that's hard work. Most people don't want to do that, but that's the work it's going to take for us to get through this. And we're, I mean, as you said, we all need to be doing this work because I can't continue to move forward with this movement if I'm not doing this work because this work helps me to shift my, my understanding for not only for the work, but for myself because it's healing. Yeah. There's so much trauma <laughs> yes. that we're all carrying around. Absolutely. And I just love your vision of, continuous work and learning, that there's no point in which any of us have arrived at final enlightenment, where we have it all figured out, where we have all the answers. In fact, that is the the lie embedded in so much technology is that it can predict the future infallibly. And so to counter that, it's not simply that we want to make those predictions more accurate. We actually want to question the very process of prediction, this very notion of omniscience and objectivity, and to actually say, rather than simply trying to tweak it to make it better at prediction, let's question the actual process. Why are we trying to um, colonize the future before we get there? Who, Who does that benefit? Who does that displace? And so rather than try to actually um, come at it with a sense that we have it all figured out, how about we actually try to operationalize something like technological humility, where our posture towards technology and towards conversations about tech justice 
comes from this learning mode that you're describing, where we come at it as students, where we're trying to learn something together and figure it out. And of course, many of the tech giants, many of those who monopolize power um, are, are certainly um, the opposite of humility. They exercise a kind of hubris that then materializes in this, the, the digital and, and, and technological material infrastructure. And, but to counter that, I don't think that we want to mirror, we don't want to come at tech justice with a hubris that, that knows it all from the point of view of, of, of our own values. We actually want to embody and enact a different ethic, a different um, you know, set of values that is not simply trying to be the new people in power, but to question the very structures of power. And rather than try to mimic those that currently monopolize and wield this power, we want to we want to do something different. It reminds me of okay, so um, there's a I'm trying to find my exact thing. Um, it, it, it just it reminds me of the, the why we in this space find ourselves in trouble so often <laughs> um, is because we, we think that the smartest person in the room decides on where that line is. And, and I'm now, and this is why I get a lot of pushback because I'm saying who defined, who said that was the smartest person in the room? How did they, who, who determined that they were the smartest person in the room? Like, well, like these terms of nice and fair, People in power get to determine what those terms actually mean. They're very subjective. They're not, mm-hmm. um, I, what I consider fair, it might not be what somebody else considers fair. And so it's, it's, it's until we are able to have various voices in the room, various lived experiences in the room, having those conversations, challenging each other in ways that, that create something that we couldn't have created by ourselves, but also put a period on that and also understanding that that will change the more we information we get it cha- it changes um and we see we see that with just history people thought the world was was flat it is not flat um if we had solidified that we would be in trouble you know it's like in our, every other place in the world n- learning and growing is the norm or the accepted accepting tech it is this and 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 people get oh you're just I got called a cancer on the community the other day. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm d- done. Um, um, uh, these people um, putting these folks on these high pedestals. You can't challenge. They say something stupid on Twitter. You can't challenge them. Um, then they get these folks to come out, and it's like your argument is not sound. I mean, there is no sound argument in that. So um, you can. You can do whatever, but you've, again, underestimated me because I'm a black woman. So you didn't expect me to come with knowledge and resources. I'm a black woman. We, we document every damn thing. We've had to. We have a level of, <laughs> of working around this world so that we can even be in the room with you that you don't even understand what we put behind the scene, have we've had to do behind the scenes because of those, two, those intersectional things. And, and I just, and people are just getting really, getting their, I've been doing this for a year and a half and people are really now seeing uh, that I'm not going anywhere and that I'm turning it up. And so when I bring individuals like you on, you can't say, because unfortunately my lived experience is not enough. I have to bring on proof. So bringing on people like yourself who are experts in these fields um, 
and and to say, mm, didn't I tell y'all that? Mm, okay, all right. So you hear it, right? All right, mm-hmm. all right. So uh, because we have to keep doing it because when we challenge these individuals, they they fall back on their feelings. Your feelings are not equal to actual harm. Yes, your feelings are no longer our responsibility. That's what therapy is for. And if you can't handle your feelings and being around people, then you don't need to be around people. And you need to not be speaking at events. You need not to be on Twitter. You need all these things because now I'm putting your, I'm putting this responsibility back on you because we've always had to manage our feelings. And I bring this up every time. How, how difficult is it for you to write an email? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Well, yeah, it used to be much harder. Now, now I'm in that mode of short and sweet, but definitely in terms of managing tone, if Mm -hmm. that's what you're implying, Mm -hmm. it, it, there's too, uh, let's say it's too much energy. Yes. Too much. much And 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 I bring this up all because I, again, it's not just me. It's not, it's my, it's the same thing as of, of, um, when, um, and I can't think of her name right now. She wrote the article about, um, white women's tears and she's in Australia. Uh-huh. And she said that she did not expect so many white women and black women in the United States to vibe with that. But it was for the first time she saw that it wasn't just an Australia issue. Mm-hmm. It was um, women of color all over the world who have been yeah. experiencing white women's tears. Yeah. And so when I bring this conversation, when I bring this example up as the email, there is not one black woman yet who said, yeah, no, I ain't, had, I ain't, I ain't got this issue, mm-hmm. especially in the professional environment. Absolutely. Now, if you take it to the point of the point where we're actually trying to um, create smart technologies that can detect emotion, knowing that the way that emotion is racialized and gendered, how one person's um, loud voice or hands moving is coded as aggressive and angry. um, Imagine now we're building technologies to detect emotion. Now, who's sight, whose vision, whose understanding of emotion is being encoded into these technologies. And then you have, yesterday I was in conversation with um, a a Latino brother, and he was talking about robots that are supposed to be assigned to follow parolees around after they are um, let off jail and um, using AI technologies to detect, you know, if they're doing something they're not supposed to. And he was talking about how if he walked up to someone and started talking loudly and moving his arms and, you know, in whatever way that he's comfortable, how that could easily be, a cro- uh, uh, you know, uh, identified as aggressive or mm-hmm. violent and how that would have serious repercussions. So in part, what you're describing as something that seems simple in the context of email, it becomes much more consequential the more that we're trying to build intelligent machines and that intelligence grows out of the minds of a small subset of humanity who don't even recognize their own assumptions when it comes to affective um, intelligence of looking at the world through their own emotional lens. And so this is, this is you know, something that's going to grow in importance and we're going to have to really um, continue to question and talk about because the the range of consequences is going to become, you know, even greater. Yeah, because we're talking about, like you said, just talking about emotions, how many black women feel safe enough to show up as their authentic selves at work. You don't know our range of emotions because we can't be angry. We can't be sad. We can't be in We can only be that. Hi, how you doing? That, that, that's, that's all you'll accept from us. Mm-hmm. 
And so your assumption is that's who we are and anything else is contrary. That means something's wrong as opposed to we have access to a full set of emotions like everybody else. It's just not safe of us for us to express those in white folks company. Yes, absolutely. All right. This has been, Mm -hmm. this has been grand. I love when I talk to researchers. (laughs) Yay. I love when I talk to researchers that brings out the nerd in me. (laughs) Um, And what final words would you like to leave the audience with? Um, You know, I think the main thing I want us to think about is to think about our own sphere of influence, whether we're a stay-at-home parent, whether we're a CEO, whether we are an artist or activist, we all have a sphere of influence. One is not greater than the other. And let's think about how to practice our commitment to anti-racism Um, anti-sexism, economic justice, all of these grand values that we give lip service to, we have to find ways to actually enact it in whatever small or large context that we happen to be in, rather than waiting for some savior to float down and guide us in a way, looking for a single leader or a single movement. We need to actually take it upon ourselves and own our own power, right? Rather than only thinking that some people have it and some people don't. We all exercise influence and power in some way. So let's figure out how to actually direct that towards the values that we um, hold up. Uh, I wanted to end by saying I love how you described your book as not new information, but a collection of information, because that's to me is what hashtag cause scene is about. It mm-hmm. is about we get there together. or We don't get there at all. And so mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do is create a movement of people from various aspects of tech who have various uh, levels of expertise to start seeing, start questioning, (laughs) start questioning and learning so that we can all have a larger impact on who gets the platform, whose voices are heard, um, who gets to decide um, what emotions, all of those things. And it's not just who's historically been there. Absolutely. So thank thank you so much. I have, this has been well worth the wait. Thank you. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and your lineup before me and after me is wonderful. (laughs) So I can't, can't wait to continue listening. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Call the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Call the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCallTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.